Hello, we're back again. It's another BRFCS podcast, and thank you once again for joining us. This episode we dissect the Wigan game with our panellists and we also have a special part two guest. You are listening to the only podcast on the internet approved by the New York Rovers. Enjoy and don't forget to check out brfcs.com. So following Rovers' defeat at Plymouth Argyle, our spirits were a bit low and we stuttered and stumbled against Oldham Athletic but then strung together four wins on the bounce all of which set up today very, very nicely. So the game against Wigan was a big one. So in a departure from normal podcast practice, what we've asked a couple of our panellists to do is to join us so that we get that visceral, almost straight-after-the-whistle emotion. So I'm delighted to be joined this afternoon by Michael Taylor, otherwise known as the Marple Leaf. Michael, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Not so Marple Leafy, though, at the moment, because I'm off Twitter for Lent. Oh, of course, but, yeah. Uh, yes, but uh, absolutely, yeah. Michael it is, then. We haven't got Mr. Delap today, so you can just be Michael without any confusion. Okay. And I'm also delighted to be joined by editor of 4000 Holes magazine, and I think has been standing outside Kidder Street today, freezing his, uh, well, what's it off. Scott Sumner. Scott, how are you? Very good, thanks. Actually quite warm. It was a bit milder today than the past week, so it wasn't too bad. So uh, people were happy to come up and sold a good hundred today. So Spend happy it. with that. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Right. So today was our opportunity really to stamp our authority on this division. We've had a, some tricky away games. We withstood a battering in the second half at Walsall. We absolutely cruised it, I think, in the second half at Wimbledon. Let's take it from there then. Michael, what were your thoughts on today? I absolutely loved the first half. We just couldn't believe how good we were, both at absorbing the pressure. Um, when Even when Wigan had the ball, they had nowhere to go. We pressed from, you know, from 1 to 11. We absolutely bossed the game. And I thought, we're going to cruise this division now. This is a massive turning point in our season. So we basically... We scored two fantastic goals to be 2-0 up at half-time and we conceded two really rotten goals in the second half that all the players will be gutted about. Um, And a free kick, frankly, that shouldn't have been. Uh, We had a great view of the non-challenge that Ryan Nambi made and he he died for it. He died for it and I was sick as anything. I came off initially feeling like it was a defeat. It does leave you like that, doesn't it? I think on that point about the Nambi free kick... Even the commentators on Sky, having rewound it several times, sort of said, I'm not even sure that's a foul, never mind a yellow card. It categorically wasn't a foul. Uh, The referee, from my perspective, was just incompetent. I know there there are some accusations of bias. I just don't think he was particularly good. Um, No, he wasn't. He didn't have control of the game when it was at a real risk of spiralling out of control and someone could have got seriously hurt. Yeah. Frankly, I thought Lenehan was amazing in the first half. But he was lucky to stay on the pitch as well. Yes. You know, it absolutely um, clobbered Powell behind, and the referee had his back to it. He didn't see it. And yeah. he, but he, he smacked him. Post VAR, that, that is a categorical red card. Scott, what was your take? Yeah, I think going into it, we're all kind of expecting a kind of Shrewsbury performance when all the players raised the game and a chance to really show that we're, we were made for the top two. And first off, totally showed that really um the, the two goals absolutely brilliant everyone was getting stuck in Lenehan again I think we're going to mention him a few times just brilliant at the back and it was actually his 
strong challenge which led to the first yeah. goal. Um, and then, obviously, a bit of a turnaround the second half. I think we were all maybe expecting us to cruise to a 3 4 nil win like, like you sometimes dream of when you tune up after 20 minutes. But, obviously, credit to Wigan. They, tactically, they changed it around a bit and you'd expect them to come back into the game, being effectively the best team in the league this year so far. So, we're going we're gonna to grumble, I think, a bit about our typical defending, which has come back to haunt us again a, a few times this afternoon, and 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 also a bit about the refereeing. I think we, when we mentioned the Nyambi challenge for the second goal, it was was that the incident immediately before the free kick? Yes. Which they whipped him. Yeah. 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 So it was. I think it was pulled. That was it. Like for a push in the back. Soft. Yeah. Um, Soft doesn't really do it yeah. justice. It was, it was so soft it made cotton wool look like emery paper, I think. Let's that's, that's yeah. put it that way. And the, the actual foul for the free, the actual free kick from which they scored from was arguably, arguably a bit soft as well. It was actually Armstrong who was back in that full-back yeah. position. Yeah. It was actually given for a tug of the shirt and it there was a, the slightest of tugs, but it's one of those where you, you, you feel if you're going to give that, you've got to give you know, a hundred through the match, which I, yeah. I, I think they should clamp down refs a bit more on, on tugging. I, I, I'm all for that. And so I'm not going to criticise the referee for giving, for actually spotting that and giving it. But it, it's just one of those which, you know, it's a, c- a couple of refereeing decisions which could have gone the other way. But then again, we could have easily dealt with it because yeah. it was a, yeah. a, a yeah. couple of, you know, that's, that's need, needless point. things to do. I was going to say, usually they've got hold of each other at some part of their bodies, interlocking arms or something, in those 50-50 challenges where uh, there's some shirt pulling involved. It's basically who can get away with it and con the ref the most. I agree with yeah. Scott, it does need clamping down on, but giving critical decisions in the final third of the pitch, and and, and you're right, it was the, the Armstrong one that led to the goal, of course. But those things affect the psychology of how you defend, doesn't it, when you've got a booking under your belt and you, Absolutely. You know, you're defending against a team who are who are clearly got quality. Yeah. So there's been a couple of games recently where a side has established a 2-0 lead and then the opposition has turned it round in the second half. This this was the reverse Oldham, wasn't it? Wasn't this the, a case of uh, almost like the exact opposite, Michael? Uh, sort of. But um, one thing I've been reflecting on, Plymouth Argyle are the highest placed team to have taken any to have beaten Rovers this season. You have to go down to 11th in the table to South End, who we played on the first game of the season away at Roots Hall for the next team to have beaten us and it's something about the mentality and the gameplay and how we set ourselves up against a lot of these sides who end up taking points from us. Wigan I think was a different kettle of fish altogether, it was a different way we set out and if anything from it, it was that they hadn't played very much, they'd had games postponed they'd had their cup run they're back to business in in League One and we were up for it off the back of two great wins away at Wimbledon and Walsall. And they haven't played for a while. And it showed. They were chasing shadows in that first half. The one thing that it really did strike me is at half-time, they were all out a good couple of minutes early. You know, high-fiving and p- pumping each other on the pitch. And all lot like trumbled up and thought, right, 45 minutes, lads, let's keep it tight. And I thought, this isn't going to be the, the repeat of the first half. Well, Nostra Herbus here did tweet when we were 2-0 up, so I can, I've got audit trails, Miss. If we can get one, <laughs> they'll get two. 
and, yeah. it, and it, it just felt it was one of those where you know two nil is the most uncomfortable lead in football. It's like there were a number of people sort of saying, "I want us to get a third. I want us to get the third. <laughs> I sort of said, I, I'd yeah. settle for a fifth. To be perfectly honest, yeah. Yeah, it was one of those where you never quite felt that they were they were on top of it. So at half time, Paul Cook definitely earned his corn. Um, yeah. So what went wrong for Rovers in reacting to that? Scott, what, what, what's your thoughts? When you're 2-0 up and it's all gone so well, you, you do start to get a bit complacent and you don't feel like you have to change anything. I think the, the bench today was very attacking-minded, so it, it's not a case of around that 60-minute mark where you're starting to think of making the first sub. You, you're not you're thinking of bringing a Payne or an Antonsen or a Nuttall on. Um, you, you're kind of happy just to stick it out at 2-0, but equally, Cook... He brought on a couple of players at that exact point and then they immediately scored a couple yeah. of minutes after. So in terms of the subs or changes we could have made, going, you know, sticking an extra defender on wasn't necessarily the right way to go, but maybe bringing on Payne on a lot earlier would have helped and actually going for the jugular and you know going for that third goal when it was either 2-0 or 2-1. Because I think Jack Payne, is a bit like Bradley Dack. He's just a cut above everyone, anyone else in this division. And I think somehow we've got to start using him a lot more. I know it's hard yeah. with, with Dak in the team as well, but it, those two are just such good players. You've got to somehow get them in the team and get them working together because it's just so dangerous. Michael, mm. what would you like to have seen Mowbray do then when it was obvious that we're going to change their shape? Yeah, I think he contrasts two different... Um, I'll come on to, your, to answer your question in a moment. But the first point would be Vaughan came on for Wigan and caused all sorts of mayhem at the back in the way that um, in the first half Wigan didn't. I think Vaughan was a real influence uh, for the rest of the game. Um, in contrast, Nuttall wasn't able to do a great deal and caused much havoc, like is the sort of player he should be doing. And, and to give Jack Payne 10 minutes isn't, isn't fair. And I, I, I'm not even sure Antonson even touched the ball. Um, so... I expected Conway to come on, actually, because he's got a bit of muscle and it, it gives us that, that extra little bit of fight in midfield. I don't know how quite he would have rearranged things in the middle. He has a different perspective from, from the sideline that, that we do. But I, I agree with Scott. He didn't really have many defensive options. And I don't think shutting up the shot would, would have changed the game. We needed to push on and get a third goal. And for that reason, I would rather have seen Jack Payne introduced Maybe as early as the 70th minute after Wigan had scored their first goal. Well, we've castigated him earlier in the season and the Rotherham away game is the one that particularly sticks in my mind where he took a forward off, brought a defender on to shore it up and it had yeah. the exact opposite effect. So yeah, but I, I, I was quite happy today that, that we weren't... I don't think... I didn't feel in the second half that we sat back. I felt no. that we were pushed back. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's, that's the kind of impetus that bringing Vaughan on did to Wigan's game. In fairness, the Rotherham game, the defender he brought on to shore things up was yeah. Elliot Ward. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is he good for? But you're right as well, a point you're making about Lenehan today. You know, making that, that key tackle for that goal. I mean, as good a tackle I've seen at Ewood Park. And for it to then fall to the feet of the magician, who then spins it out to, um, to Armstrong for the goal. Amazing. Brilliant. Yeah, Dak's um, passing today was superb. Oh, he was. He was untouchable, and he was. You know, he was the the player most likely to have got as the winner in in the second half when we did push on and look like we might have scored. I was screaming for Armstrong to pass it sideways to him as well when he was clean through and he didn't. He yeah. took a shot himself. You can forgive forwards 
um, for many sins, selfishness being one of them. But when you've got someone who's got a better chance of scoring one for the team, you should take it. The the goals that we scored today were, were quite superb and everything looked really good at half-time. Wigan, did they benefit from not playing last weekend and did Rovers suffer from a, a Monday night game? Fatigue, Scott? Possibly, but I, I don't totally buy that. I think when you're on a four-match four winning run like we have been, you just want to play and play. And I, it, I think the players we've got, the kind of the Mulgrews and the Bennetts, are just so up from it from zero to 90 that um, I, I don't think tiredness is necessarily yeah. an issue. And as we mentioned before, it took Wigan a 45 to get going because they've hardly played. So it kind of works both ways. Yeah. So I, I don't think that was the deciding factor. And I just thought they looked very heavy-legged in the last 10 minutes. And I was really concerned that we'd give a third away, I must admit. Yeah, it did look a bit like if anyone's going to nick it at the end, Wigan might because the other... Another couple of free kicks of corners, and, and obviously we've always looked a bit shaky from those this season. And and you know, obviously Payne didn't have the time to you know create much at all, and it we didn't seem to have any opportunities in the last last ten fifteen minutes. So um, I think everyone would probably agree watching the game, it was a, a fair result. So we, we can't grumble too much. No, that was my conclusion. I must admit, forty five minutes was ours. Forty five minutes was theirs. Uh, had we scored a third, uh, then I got visions of it being a bit like the, the 2001 Burnley game where we would have gone on to get four or five and really, really stamp our authority. I guess when you've given up a two-goal lead, it feels like a defeat, unlike the Oldham game where when you've pulled back, at least you feel you've got something out of it. What does this mean for the promotion race? Michael, would you have taken a point at 12 o'clock or were you all guns blazing for three? I was all gun blazing for three, but... Yeah, I did ask myself whether I'd have settled for that at the beginning. And, I, and on balance, I probably would. It was much more important not to lose the game psychologically as we come into the running for the reasons I mentioned earlier. You know, teams don't beat Blackburn Rovers in this division, particularly those around us. No, I think it, we're still in a strong position. We're top of the league. The points that we can win are behind us. And, you know, it's, in, it's still really in our hands. Mathematically, it might not be because the onus is on Shrewsbury and Wigan to win absolutely all of their games. But we've got our noses in front and I'll, I'd, I'd definitely take that. Scott, would you swap with either Wigan or Shrewsbury as the league table stands? I would do. I'd probably swap with Wigan. I think there's six points behind us, four games in hand. And, you know, even though it is a bit of a fixture pile-up, I think with the quality we've got, they'll probably be able to make that difference up. Um, certainly wouldn't swap with Shrewsbury. I don't think we've got five points on them. And they've got two games in hand. And if you look at it on a points earned per game basis, I think we're heading towards something like 93 points at the minute, which, you know, that's got to see us through to automatic promotion. We'd be extremely unlucky not to go up automatically with that total. And wouldn't so, that just be Blackburn Rovers through and through? <laughs> yeah, and, and that works out, I think, something like six wins, two draws and two defeats. And that would take us to 93 and got to be confident of getting six wins out of the last 10 games. Um, yeah. Shrewsbury, I don't know, we, we, we've been waiting for them to have a prolonged slip-up of a run for... For, for all season and they, they're hanging in there but I'd... they've stuttered though haven't they they've stuttered at home I yeah, think their away yeah. form curiously has held them up and has kept them up there but they have that run of um, I think two defeats and a draw in three consecutive home games and of course they, their game was postponed at the weekend so their fixtures 
will, will be clustered. They've also got, uh, they're still in the checker trade, aren't they? They've got a checker trade. Yeah, they're playing Yeovil at home as well, I think, in the semi-final. So you'd expect you expect them to um, get to the final. I'd expect a weakened team to be playing. That, that's for certain. Maybe. Not, Maybe. Notwithstanding, I think, given yeah, the eyes on the, are on the prize of promotion. I work with a, um, with a Shrewsbury fan, and every Monday morning we... You dissect the league table, and every midweek fixture sees us sort of like teasing each other, depending on the score lines. And we, we between us, we've sort of been saying since Christmas, somebody's going to finish third here with uh, a colossal points total, mm. uh, and of yeah. course fall into the playoffs. And, and all along, you know, you don't want it to be your side. Whilst winning the playoff final is probably the the most enjoyable way to go up. Uh, losing a playoff final or losing a semi-final, and Rovers have done both over the years, is is just absolutely grim. I was just saying, yeah, if that is the case, whichever team it is, if it's going to be one of Wigan, us and Shrewsbury, who drops into that third place, I think they'd be happy to go into that playoffs with a lot of confidence, you know, because if you are a team who have, who have been good enough to get to 90 points and finish there, you, you fancy your chances against those other three, three teams or the even though it is, you know, the usual lottery, maybe. Yeah, I've, I think I've likened it in um, in a posting that I put earlier in the season to running the Olympic marathon, and then the, the bronze medal winning position is pulled to one yeah. side and sort of said, you've now got to run a 400-metre sprint against these two guys here <laughs> before yeah. we can give you your medal. So it, it kind of doesn't feel it doesn't feel quite right somehow. I understand the commercial aspect. But if you look at the top of the teams that have, are likely to be in the playoffs... Of the 10 games we've paid, played against teams that are in the top six now, and we have played them all home and away, we've only do, we've only lost one, and that was to Plymouth Argyle away. And they're my tip. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> so it's all about momentum, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they're the, they're the team that scared the living bejesus out of me because I think uh, I, I saw the game in the flesh at Ewood, and uh, we struggled hard to get a point. And uh, I saw the video of the, the match down at, uh, at a home park, and... Yeah, we were thoroughly outplayed. I suppose, on the one hand, you're flipping it round. Well, we've lost to them twice already. We're not going to lose to them three times. So you could you could take that argument. Or you could take the view that, well, we're just going to get automatic promotion and everything will be absolutely hunky-dory, which would be tremendous. It was a draw at Ewood, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. was. Yeah. yeah, it was the one where Ben Gladwin should have put one away absolutely. in the last minute yeah. to get us the winner. Graham yeah. yeah. Carey this... scored a stunner for Plymouth. Yeah. 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 The, the team I fear most in the running, if we think about the... You know, as I'm sure we all do, you look through the fixtures and think, "Yep, yeah, should win that, should win that." The banana skin for me is Bristol Rovers away. I think they've got the. Um, I don't know. Whenever I see them on, when I see the results coming, they seem to be quite quite solid at home. They were well. They were a difficult opponent at Ewood, and if you remember, they, were, they had, they had yeah. a goal disallowed, which perplexed. Yeah. I think yes. in real time, yeah. it was only when you watched it on TV and you realised it was an absolutely brilliant decision by the, the referee. I, to be perfectly honest, guys, every game scares me now when you look at the fix of this. Yeah, this close. Doncaster and Southend have beaten us, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Doncaster away is the one I've got my eye on, being a working Doncaster. That's the one that could make yeah. working life quite difficult, but uh, fingers crossed. So, uh, just to summarise then, uh, marks out of 10 so far for Rovers' season thus far. Michael, what would you give? Well, I'd give it 8 because we're top of the league. Um does that mean that I am blind to the cracks that need that have been papered over and that there are potential weaknesses? No, but we are where we are and we're top of the league. And if you'd offered me that at the beginning of the season, especially on the train home from Southend, yes. I'd have uh, bitten, bitten your hand off. So, Absolutely. yeah. Scott? 
Yeah, probably similar, maybe maybe seven out of ten. It's been a strange season in that we have done well overall and well, we must have done because we're top of the league currently. But it just hasn't had the feel of that kind of swashbuckling, no, beating everyone left, right and centre. I yeah, remember yeah. when we last got promoted in 01, we were... We had that great running spring where we were just yeah. beating all the teams around us, all the big teams like Bolton, West Brom. And, and we've had some great performances away, but it's just that, I don't know, it just hasn't felt like a, a long period, despite a long unbeaten run where, you know, we're beating teams comfort, comfortably left, right and centre. So What I will say, though, is one thing that we've got this season, which I can't think that we've ever had it since 1996 is we have the best player in the division in our team. So let's give let's give a mention, because I don't think, however much credit in this podcast we've given to Bradley Dack today, and how, whether the drunk corporate hospitality people, but, but they may not have been drunk, but the people who award <laughs> Man of the Match gave it to him quite rightly today. But he is, as I call him, the magician. He was magnificent at Wimbledon with his flick goal. Um, and he was magnificent today for his contribution to both of the goals. And we are very, very blessed to have a player like him playing in the blue and white of our club. Absolutely. Uh, of course, I am. I have to keep reminding myself. I am the person who slagged him off earlier in the season. I will just, just, just prod a little bit at that man of the match thing. Dak uh, was superb today, but I would have given it to Lennon. They gave it to Dak on TV. Um, I know Lennon was under the cosh of the second half. I just think the way he's come back from the injury that he's had today, yeah. uh, he, re- he really, and it's almost like, you know, Buggins turned to a certain extent because you could give it to Dak for virtually every match, certainly since October. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I was really, really yeah. pleased with Lennon today. But yeah, it was, it was neck and neck. But I think if, yeah. if had it been yeah. my decision, I probably would have given it to, to Lennon. I think we've missed Louis, my um, 17 year old, said to me today, he says, he says, we've really missed Lenehan. He says, he's a leader. No disrespect to Downing. Downing's a soldier, but Lenehan's a leader, and we've needed another leader on the pitch. Yeah, because a lot, a lot of weight falls on Charlie Mulgrew's shoulders. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, yeah, if those two can stay fit and inform and not suspended and all the rest of it, uh, I think that... that I have heard, well. actually, I've heard, actually, Daryl Lenehan's just got home, and uh, he's, emptied his, he's emptied his pockets, he's got his phone, his uh-huh. car keys, his wallet, <laughs> and uh, apparently, and... yeah, of course, he's also got Will Grigg. <laughs> <laughs> On that bombshell. So, chaps, thank you very much for joining us at short notice. Uh, say it's an unusual departure for us to try and get something out, but it was such a big game today, we wanted to try and get a, get a pod out and get some commentary quickly, and we've done that. Scott? Uh, all the very best uh, with sales for 4,000 holes the rest of the season. Thank you very much. Cheers. And Michael, thank you once again for joining us. Not at all. It's always a pleasure, Ian. Tremendous. And we'll be back in part two, and our special guest in part two is the former Lancashire Telegraph reporter, Paul Wheelock. You are listening to the only podcast on the internet approved by the New York Rovers. Enjoy, and don't forget to check out brfcs.com. Welcome back, everyone, and we're delighted to have as our special guest in this episode Paul Wheelock, who is the former Rovers reporter at the Lancashire Telegraph. He was with us for more than three seasons, from 2013 until, and this is in his own words, Owen Coyle finished me off in October <laughs> 2016. His last game was a nil-nil draw at home to Ipswich, so it was quite the send-off that we arranged for him. He's currently running the sports desk at his former paper, the Chester Chronicle, and so once more has to report on a club in crisis. 
although Chester's fate is somewhat more serious than Rover's, as their very existence is under threat. But we'll ask him more about that shortly. Paul, a very warm welcome, and thank you so much for giving up your time to join us on this podcast. Oh, absolute pleasure, Ian. Real, real, real pleasure to do it. Excellent. Well, thank you once again. So to kick off, let's take you back then. Let's go back to your childhood. What was your route into journalism, and when did you first realise that that's what you wanted to do? Well, I think it's something I've, I've always wanted to do. It was, it was quite ironic. I think in my teenage years, my mum, uh, my mum kind of got some old mementos out from my school days. And you know what you like when you're in infant school, you have like lists about what you wanted to do. And it, I actually said sports journalism, so it has it was like a long term ambition for myself. But it was probably only after I finished uni, I didn't really do a degree that would lead me into sports journalism. That I started doing a lot of work experience. Uh, I started covering our, our local football club where I live now, Prescott in Merseyside, Prescott Cables. I think they play in the Northern Premier League now. Yeah. Uh, for, for community radio station, Nosley Community Radio Station. So it was a way in. It was it was really get your hands dirty. And from then on, uh, I got my NCTJ qualification, which is a bit uh, too technical, but it's kind of like the, it's like it's like a teaching degree. If you get that, you can go and do the nuts and bolts journalism. And then from there, it, it, I never really looked back. It was it, it was something. I was always wanted to do, uh, to be perfectly honest. But it was probably only when I got back to 22, 23 that I really got serious about it. Uh, uh, after I left uni, I did various jobs just to, to uh, pay the, the bills. Yeah, yeah test, and, but it, it was something in the back of my mind that I've always wanted to do. So since I've been 22, 23, it's, it's been my life for the last 13, 14 years. Fantastic. So always on the sports side. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was. It, it, it was sport, to be honest, and, and mainly football. It was. It's. It's just luck, really, that I got into it because at the end of the course, which was in Liverpool, uh, I uh, on the final day there, I got. I actually got a call from uh, the Chester Chronicle uh, editor, who's now nice. long, no longer with us, sadly, Eric Langton, uh, and I was coming on the train home from the the leave and do like night out. And I kind of got the impression when he called that I got the job, uh, which was through the sports editor of the Flint tradition in North Wales, but my actual phone cut out. So for, <laughs> for, for 20 Fantastic. minutes on the train and then 20 minutes run home, I had this horrible vision that they'd probably given the job to someone else. But luckily enough, uh, he said, uh, I got back in touch with him through his PA and he, he offered me the job. And he actually said, you're going to be in this injury for the next 40 years. And at the time, there was probably nothing better than I'd heard in my life, but you know, 15 years on, I'm probably disagreeing with that now. <laughs> well, uh, we, and, uh, yeah, it was it was pure luck. I went for a sports job, I've got one, and it's one of those industries that once you're in and you do okay, yeah. you, you could probably stay in there. It's hard to get into it, but once you're in, you you, you should be okay. Touchwood. Are there any other sports that you like to cover then, or is it football that's your real passion? It is football that's that's a real passion. I do I like boxing. Uh, since I've gone back to the Chester Chronicle, we've got quite a healthy. It's quite like it, like in Lancashire as well. To be fair, in East Lancashire, there's a healthy boxing scene here with some pr- professional fighters who've had like world title fights, and then young pros who are coming up and young amateurs. And I've done quite a bit of that uh, since I've, I've come back here, and I just find it. I really like tennis. That's probably my second favourite sport after okay. after football, uh, just because I it's it's almost like I love. It's the actual technical ability, but it's actually the physical and the mental because it's just one person, isn't it, on a court yeah, and everything yeah. that you've got to go through. And boxing's similar to me, and unfortunately, I don't have many opportunities to cover tennis. Uh, so boxing, so since I've come back, I've been really interested to do that because sometimes with, with footballers, and, and I mean this with the greatest respect in the world, they're almost media trade now. that It's hard to get a good angle and a good line out of them, but I, I never find that with boxers, uh, maybe because it's the, the one man, you know, one man, one woman alone. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's something I've really enjoyed doing since I've, since I've come back here because when I was the Rovers reporter LT, even though I did chip in 
uh, with other sports because we were all part of one big team. It, it was obviously Rovers was a big job, yeah. <laughs> particularly at that time. Yeah, there was a lot going on. So I think it boxing's was. quite visceral, though, isn't it? As well, I think they, uh, you, I think the point about media training for footballers is very well made because you, you can see it's so clinically, it's almost antiseptically clean now. Some of the stuff, but bo- yeah, it, boxing it is, they will it, they will call it straight off. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I think you can see that in the in the writing as well, can't you? I think some it's many many fo- excellent football journalists there, but even though that is the, probably the journalist I read the most. Actually, I enjoy reading about other sports and because they just get different angles and there's yeah. different ways in. And yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. Whose sports journalism do you uh, do you enjoy reading? Well, I'd probably say we've been talking about the sports desk today because uh, we work, we obviously work in Chester, but we've got Crew in our patch as well. And Crew is obviously a very big story at the yeah, moment with what's yeah. going on with obviously the sad case with Barry Vernell uh, and Daniel Taylor uh, of The Guardian and Observer, really. Uh, I've had a couple of dealings with Daniel in the past. He actually, in the final summer day, gave me a bit of a tip-off about a player Owen Coyle was interested in. Uh, so and <laughs> so I've actually had a good few dealings with him. Uh, but even if I hadn't, uh, he was a really nice guy, which was great. But he, I think he's a fantastic journalist. And I think some of the, some of the things he's covered this year have, have been fantastic, really. And, you know... He's someone I certainly look up to. And then probably I read a bit of the Times as well. I respect all tabloid journalists because I think that the, the style of writing they've got is really, really impressive because they know their audience. But I think someone like Paul Joyce from the Times as well, he, he covers Merseyside, yeah. uh, which you might be able to tell from my accent is, is where I'm from. And I think he's probably one of the top operators as well in terms of the stories he gets. Not his writing style as such, but in terms of he seems to break all the big stories. And apart from the journalism, I think you've got to be a good writer. There's no doubt about that. But I think it's about how you deal with people and the con- and, and really contacts are everything. You know, contacts are everything, really. Any, yeah. You know, I think it, because I think that is it, that's where you get your stories from. You've got to build up trust and relationships with, say, for instance, with football clubs and agents and things like that and all different people, all the different facets that are in the game. And I think he's certainly one of the best of it. So g- given the way that journalism has gone over the last few years and the, the impact of technology, how does that affect how you run, how you cover a story? So previously, for instance, I assume that you you get wind of a story, you'd have a chance to build it up and then release it on the unsuspecting public when he wanted. But now with Twitter and Facebook and all the other stuff, how, how does that affect your your style and your approach? Well, this, I just don't think... There's no point holding back now. Uh, I, I, I come from a traditional background where... You know, I used to go to football games where you take a notepad and paper and then you cover the game and then you wouldn't have to write about it until maybe the Wednesday if it was working a weekly paper at that time. But now it's just so instant. There's no point holding something back. If you've got it and you've got the story, get it out there. Yeah. And I know that would seem strange for, say, like the, the LT, the Lancashire Telegraph, because it's still a daily paper, so you don't have to wait that long. But I think if you've got it, and it's, and most importantly, if it's accurate, because I think... There's a lot of you see on Twitter now. There's like almost like a, an arms race to, to we broke the story first. But you know what? I, I, as long as it's accurate, why not get it out there? Because it is the it is the kind of the way we consume media now has changed completely, hasn't it? So if you've got it, you know it's right. Get it out there because people are, are ready for it and they're, they're not waiting till the next morning now for the for the papers to land on the doormat. No, I think yeah, the impact of Twitter, I think in particular in terms of yes. linking through to stories. It's how I consume uh, most of my journal. I will buy a Sunday paper and read it in the in the true old fashioned way. But during the week now, it it is yeah. You pick up your phone, you're wandering down the office, uh, you're just quickly glancing at the screen. What? How did you 
how did the Rovers fans respond to you and how did you interact with them? How did you find them generally uh, on Twitter and social media? Yeah, I, I loved it really because I, I, it was, again, it might come on to this, but you probably tell from my accent that I wasn't a born and bred Blackburn Rovers fan. And given the fact of one, when I took over, it was probably just over the the worst part of kind of like the Yankees yes. area, but it continued to decline on my watch as well. But I think it was a club you had to throw yourself into, and and, and okay, you had to throw yourself into the current situation or the the situation at that time. But there's a, an absolutely amazing history with Blackburn Rovers, uh, so I threw myself into it, and, I, and that included uh, social media. Because I thought, well, what's better way to, to to really get over get get in touch with fans is to actually speak to them on a daily basis. So it was usually first thing I'd look at in the morning, Twitter, and the last yeah. thing at night. Because I think in in the olden days, you go down the pub, wouldn't you, and you'd have a discussion with Rovers. You actually don't have to do that anymore, or whichever club you're at, because you've got the pub is Twitter, it's Facebook, yeah. it's forums and things like that. So you you can get a. I think it's really important as a journalist that you get the mood of the fan base. And you, that's what social media, yeah, it can be tough at times, but you know that I think you've got to have a thick skin as a journalist. And, and to be honest, I think it's coming from a place of care because you know what it's like when your team's not going well. Sometimes you want to vent off. It might go to the, the local sports journalist. It might go to the club itself. But I think it's just coming from a place of passion and caring, really. There's a few accounts that I follow that are people of similar age to me, and we sort of hark back to the days of the sports pink. And, yeah, know, there'd be there'd be a strongly worded letter to the sports editor of the local paper on a Sunday afternoon, you know, critiquing the team from the previous day. Now, yeah. by five o'clock, you've got five thousand instant opinions, all saying whether the, where the manager got it right or got it wrong. And it's just, it is a different world. It's that instant consumption, which is uh, a fascinating change. I'm probably not the only one, but you know, you kind of do it. It's almost like a perverse thing. You know, after a bad result, you'll actually go onto the official club website's tweet at the full time just to see what people are <laughs> saying because it's it's just like a, a strange thing to do. But that is the way, isn't it? Now, as you say, it's, it's completely so. instantaneous. So, what what brought you over to East Lancashire from from Chester? What were, what were your first thoughts when you heard about the job? Well, I'd actually, uh, I don't think I maybe probably said this publicly at once before, but I'd actually gone for it previously. Uh, back then, I was covering every club I've covered in my life as a football reporter has been, uh, it's like lurched from one crisis to another. My actually editor <laughs> actually called me a Jonah the other day. Uh, and I'm beginning to think it's right, but I actually covered Wrexham. Oh, had, uh, unscrupulous, unscrupulous owners themselves at that time, and they tried to sell the ground. And, yes. All that, and there was a lot, a lot going on. That was my first job dealing with a manager called Dennis Smith, which was an experience in itself. But anyway, that was that was that was my. I was around that time, and I think Andy Neal had left the the LT. I believe it was him then, yeah. uh, who 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 had uh, followed Peter White. Yeah. And I went for the job at the time, and I, I got knocked back for it, which was fair enough because I didn't have much experience at all, enough experience to go and uh, work for a paper like the Lancashire Telegraph and cover a club like Rovers. Uh, but I asked the editor, the sports editor at the time. You know what I could do, and I took it on board. And then, well, what would it have been? Uh, probably it was. It took a long time to get to the job. So it would have been maybe midway through 2013 that Andy Cryer had left to to go to the BBC. And I think a few people at the LT had been doing the the Rovers beat. Yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, they weren't appointed. I just why why not? You know, I think I, it's just a fantastic football club, despite everything that had gone on. And I felt even though it was on a much bigger scale at Chester than Chester FC at that time. I'd gone through a lot with that because 
I don't know if anyone Rose fans are aware, but they were a long-standing football league club called Chester City, and they were owned by someone called Stephen Vaughan, who's uh, worth a, a, a Google search about. And uh, they actually went through relegation into the conference or the National League, as it's known now, administration then. He became the first owner to be banned from being a fit and proper person or fail a fit and proper person's test. And eventually they were wound up in high court. So I even though it was a smaller club than Blackburn, a much smaller club than Blackburn, I thought it gave me a good a ground into, yeah, yeah. into what... Because back then, I, I can remember the forums, it was, oh, get to March, we're going into administration, we're going to get a 10-point deduction. So I felt... I, I still didn't feel that was going to be the case, but I thought, if it does go that, that, down that road, I've actually had experience to it. And I, I think that helped me get the job in the end. And yeah, but it was Blackburn Rovers. Why wouldn't you want to cover a, a club of their size and their history? You say about Chester City, I, I did actually go to Sealand Road yeah, uh, Rovers played a league game in 1979, and a friend of mine, his uh, his elder brother, uh, drove. So it, oh, even brilliant. though it was midweek, it was like picking us up out after school, and we went. And it was the the only season that Ian Rush played. Yeah. Now in in my memory, in my head, he played, but I've never <laughs> not never seen the lineup to prove it's, it. It's worth checking. It would have been third division. Would that be yeah. under Kendall? Would yeah, that be yeah, the the, was, the one season under third division? Yeah, it that, probably it would have been promotion season. So uh, yes, yeah, I, did, I have actually been to Sealand Road, but I've not been to the Diva Stadium. So when you took over, uh, what what did you know about Rovers before you accepted the job, and what were your first impressions when you first started dealing with the club? Uh, as as a football fan, as we touched on earlier, as, as someone who, who, who reads football journals, it's hard not to have known what was going on at, at Rovers at the time, or certainly since since Venkis had taken over. But I was always I was always interested in Rovers because I'd gone there as an away supporter quite often. It's a fantastic, I think, as away supporters in the Darwin end, it's a fantastic place to be. And probably because it's this, the, the, the football geek in me. When I was growing up in the 80s, I used to devour like Rothman albums and like, you know, the, the, each year the annuals and things yeah. like that. And there was always a player in, say, like the first division, second division, third division who I really liked. And it was Simon Garner, yeah. who obviously years to come that I got to know pretty well as, a, as an LT columnist. So I always kind of kept an, eye, kept an eye on Blackburn. And obviously I was from the Northwest as well. Uh, so I had a good I had a good idea about the history. I certainly was up to date with the the present situation or the current situation at the time. And when I got the job, it was I can actually remember we were in a holiday in the lakes, and I remember getting the call saying I got the job. Uh, and it was around that time. I don't know if the national newspapers do them anymore, but they do like at the start of each season do like a little booklet of you know all the fixtures and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. And I remember just going back to the to the lodger to kind of like we were staying in a cottage. Uh, me and my family and I remember just looking at the clubs Blackburn were going to be playing and it was just wow it was just you know because that's what I wanted I've always wanted to do I wanted to cover a big club like Blackburn Rovers and it was just yeah it was it was it was quite it was quite a lot to take in the back and then the first day was uh transfer deadline day and there was a big story about Jordan Rhodes going to Owen Coyle's Wigan. Uh, I think it was a story being pushed by a certain journalist who may have known Owen Coyle as well. And, uh, <laughs> I have no I was idea Gav- who you're talking about. Yeah, he was actually, he's an OK bloke as well, by the way. <laughs> uh, but uh, he, uh, I, my first job was doing Gary Bowyer at Brockall. Right. Uh, and if, to actually refer to him, he was, he was brilliant when we Gary on the phone because, you know, we didn't need to be, but I think he would explain the situation. It was my first day, it was transfer deadline day and I needed to find out if Jordan Rhodes was going or not, which, uh, which was to become us from a bane of my life, Jordan, before we left on transfer deadline day eventually. Uh, and, but Gary was great with me. The next day I went down to Brockall uh, and I was shown around the place and it was, it was just 
if you've been to Brockhall, it's just an absolute fabulous place. Uh, it, it, I can't imagine there's too many better places in the country where footballers get to train and work every Absolutely. day, uh, yeah. both the academy and the, the main train main training centre. And it, it really is testament to like Jack Walker's legacy, what he's left there. It's, it's just a wonderful place. And then a few days later, Rob Gill, uh, who's the head of media, I got invited to, to Ewood Park and was shown around there, walking up the Jack Walker stands and seeing the Premier League trophy and then walking around the ground. And it really was... It was such an exciting time. It was it was it was nerve wracking because I knew the job I was taking up taking on because Andy Cry yeah. was excellent at the job as well, and I knew it was it was troubled times. Even though actually Gary Bowyer's uh, tenure there was probably one of the most stable times in the Venkies reign. Say, wasn't your, it? your first season was probably that's the most successful one uh, I think we had under Venkies. We, after relegation, the, we had a really good run at the end of the season, and we just missed out on playoffs. There was a period, I think many fans would say that that squad that Bowyer had, um, there are some that would sort of say we underperformed seriously, but you certainly got them working together. And the second half of the season, I think that, that gave us a lot of momentum. So I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of hope at the end of that season that it would carry forward, but it wasn't to be. Um, yeah, well, I, I can remember, I know, I think I got a bit of stick at the time because they were ne- the team were never actually in the playoffs were they you know in like, despite I think it was a 12 game run unbeaten run at the end yeah. of that season but they ever actually broken to the top six but it always sticks with me there was a game at home to Brighton and ironically enough I'm pretty sure Gordon Greer scored late on I think it was like 2-1-2-2-3-2-3-2-3-3 and if Rovers would have won that day that would have been obviously two points more and Brighton would have lost a point and it actually would have been enough to take them yeah. into the playoffs yeah. uh, and, I, I, and I really do believe I've, I've kept in touch with Tom Kearney a bit and and, and since then I've actually I, we, we, I've, he said the same I truly believe Rovers would have gone up that season I think Derby I think QPR beat Derby in the playoff final 1-0 yeah. but I just felt there was a momentum there even though there were a lot of draws if you look back a lot of the draws were Late goals being given away and things like that, and I just, I just, had, I thought it was a really good team. You know, Kearney, Marshall, Conway, Gustad, Rhodes, Hanley. It was just, it was a really good team, and and I think that's, it's been proven that a lot of those players are either playing at the top end of the Championship now, or in some cases actually the Premier League. And I think Gary deserves a lot of credit for that. I think in the second season they did underperform because with with those players, but there was by that stage. FFP and there was a lot of things going on that probably didn't help him but yeah it, it was a good team to watch that really good team to watch yeah it was really frustrating as you say it was a 12 game unbeaten run but there were a lot of draws and yes uh, the, that, there was the Brighton one and then there's Sheffield Wednesday away oh yeah um, yeah with three apiece as well which is yeah that, that game rankles with me to this to this day living in Sheffield it was like my, my local fixture uh, and then we drew nil nil with the Oval afterwards. You thought yeah. that's it, we've blown it, won the last yeah. three. But as you say, so in terms of getting getting your feet under the table at Rovers and all the rest of it, who who did you find were the the easiest players or officials to to interview? Who who was the most communicative and the most helpful towards you? Well, to be fair, I it was a good bunch of players. I know that probably make people laugh a bit because you know Gary Bowie. Everyone said, oh well, you know, do a bunch of nice boys, but. It was the case, you know, particularly under Gary and even under Paul Lambert and Owen Coyle. And, and Rovers deserve credit because we certainly had our ups and downs, myself and the paper with them over my time as the LT reporter for, for the club. Uh, but they were always really good with access to players uh, and access to managers. And all all the managers, Gary, Paul Lambert uh, and Owen Coyle I worked with were always you know, yeah, we, again, we had our ups and downs, but they were always available, you know, not just at press conferences. They would always take a call. So there was no one 
in that time, and I'm not trying to dodge the question at all, but there was no one who was who was particularly it was bad. Yeah. It was particularly different. It was just what, what I loved most about the job was the fact that it was it was like an open book of ex players to speak to and. You know, I was privileged to speak to and meet most of the 95 Premier League winning team, but it was people like Brian Douglas. I think I'm a, he was the first person I called, actually, uh, yeah. because it was before the Burnley game. My actual first game was at Turf Moor as well after transfer deadline day. Oh, wow. So Brian, Brian Douglas was the first time. So you, David Dunn, Dunny was always great to speak to him. really got on well with him. Um, but in terms of... So I've not got really anything negative to say about people who were hard to interview. It's just there's loads of great memories and probably the best memory, which I always mention to everyone because it's like a badge of honour, is, is meeting and interviewing two guys, which will probably go down with me yeah. as uh, the most surreal and probably one of the most rewarding interviews I've ever done, to be honest. I, I, I think he has a reputation for not uh, liking to be interviewed. No, it was it was a bit strange how it came about. We I got, I got speaking to his agents and I think they were looking for a favour and respect that. I'm pretty sure one or two guys' children was either coming or was in university I think at that time he was looking for a job. So it was a chance to get his name out over here again and say, like, he's been, I think he was assistant manager to Mancini at Galatasaray, wasn't he, at some yeah. stage? And I think it was just a way of getting him over there. And why not? And come back to uh, and, and come back to Ewood. And the club were good in the respect that they let us stage it in the, it was a lovely day at Ewood. They let us stage it in the Blackburn, at the Blackburn end at that time because you, you wouldn't have brought uh, two guys to the horrible tatty offices on High Street in Blackburn Town Centre <laughs> you just don't bring someone like that to our offices how to win uh, friends and influence people no and it was it was brilliant he had shades on he was smoking he looked like a movie star he could speak perfect English but as soon as the interview started uh, he, he used a translator so he was he was completely <laughs> any completely enigmatic everything you'd want two guy to be in person because he was certainly like so many football fans who watched Premier League football at that time he was a, he was a wonderful player to watch so yeah there was no one bad there was particularly no one bad to interview and, and, and the best part of the job was was this history and all these yeah. different players you can obviously you could speak to over the years how easy do you find it then as a reporter for a club where you're, you're, you are almost solely reliant on the club to give you stories to, to remain objective and dispassionate um, I know Andy obviously had his moments around the Venkis ownership and there was a lot of trauma when eventually the LT published the uh, the front page saying it's time for Venkis to, yeah. to sell up. How, how did you find it following on with that legacy? It, again, at the start, it was... It, 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 at the start, certainly when, when Gary had taken over in his first season in charge, then Alan Myers came in. There was a certain... Again, it was a word that was often used and it's probably cliche now, st- stability or it was stable, but it was... There wasn't many protests at that point. So it, it what that wasn't difficult in that respect, but you had to be, be aware of what had gone on and what could come in the future. And our relationship with the club was fairly good. It was probably where it started to get me down a bit and I began to question whether the paper was doing enough was probably after Paul Lambert left. Because at the time, I think everyone was happy that Gary, not happy, but could accept that Gary Bowie was going to leave because he was still doing a good job, even though you were Blackburn were fighting near the, the bottom of the table. He was playing some fantastic football. I remember a game against Ipswich at home where he won 2 0, and they were, they were fantastic. And, and Burnley, the derby, was they won 1 0 because of Arfield's goal. And Rovers played them off the park that day. Mm. It just didn't seem to be working for Gary. And I don't think anyone had any complaints when Paul Lambert came over, came in. But that, it was really horrible that time when Paul Lambert left, even probably worse behind the scenes. I think he, 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 Paul Lambert says what he feels and it was pretty clear he was coming across publicly about what was going on. But behind the scenes, it was just not nice at all. And it was almost like then they appoint Owen Coyle 
which was kind of like throwing you know a petrol canister onto a, an open fire and it was Absolutely. just whether you yeah. whether you think he's a good bad or indifferent manager it was the wrong appointment because of give his past links to, to to various things and who he'd managed and what have you and after that it was really difficult it was not particularly enjoyable uh because and because there was a clear feeling again against the owners and it was not a particularly nice time to report on I think I was always honest in my reports uh, and honest in what was going on. But I also understand that some people may have thought the, the paper didn't go far enough at that time and may we should have pushed Ravenkis to go again. But it's a strange one with them, but I just don't know if they listen anymore. They're almost... And, and then they, they can all... You can, the best advice or the best thing what people who knew them told me, don't second-guess them. And I think this yeah. season and what they've done this season kind of proves it again. And the way the club is at the moment kind of proves it again. It's yeah, it, it was frustrating. It was tough. They've taken us down to the third division. There's no getting away with that. They got yep. rid of a competent layer of management. They got rid of a, a competent team manager. But they got rid of several competent team managers and some Most less definitely. competent team managers. Um, but the, 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 I have felt, uh, obviously success on the field makes a big difference, that this season under Mowbray has rekindled a lot of enthusiasm because we're winning some football matches. Do, do you keep, still keep an eye out for Rovers' scores? Oh, yeah, most definitely because it was uh, it was three, four years of my life and it was... I remember when I got the inter- was interviewed for the job, the sports editor, Alex, said at the time, are you ready to take over your life? And I was because it is an all-or-nothing club, particularly at that time, and it is anyway because it's Blackburn Rovers. So, yeah, I, I'm fully up to speed about what's going on. It's Again, it's that cliche, there's still the first score I look for on a yeah. Saturday after for whatever I'm doing, whether I'm working or another game. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm being really pleased with the developments this season. Again, it's not, ni- it's not nice going down, but in a strange way, that winning football matches doesn't cure all ills but it certainly makes people maybe just put things into the background but i but looking at it from the outside now it things that it's not the things that were going wrong maybe last season or the summer before between lambert and, and coyle are improved now you it not a week goes by where another youth team player seems to get signed up and there, there seems to be a less reliance on loan players and by the end of this season, I imagine there's going to be a number of players on contracts, which wasn't the case for a couple of seasons. You know, going into the summer, there was six, seven players yeah. on the contracts for a, a club like Blackburn Rovers statue. It was, it was, it was terrible. It was. I don't know whether they let, took their eye off the ball or the Paul Lambert kind of era had, had burned them. But then again, it, I, I still can't excuse them for what they did with, with you know, by appointing Owen Cole because that was just. It was disrespectful to, the, to how the fans were feeling at the time. It was but, an extraordinary decision. Yeah, I, well, I, I can remember being... I left on the Friday because I had a week's holiday and I think they'd interviewed three managers. I think Warren Joyce was one, Adkins was another and Sl- Russell Slade was another. And Not let's, not Neil let's, Warnock? No, I, think Neil, I think with Neil Warnock... Or did it not even get I to th- that point? No, I, I think it was close. I think there was something... I think there was definitely something there, but I don't think you really need to interview Neil Warnock, do you? you know, formally, it's, <laughs> no. it's it, because and uh, to be fair to him, what he's proven what in Cardiff. Yeah, yeah. And at that, but and I, all I was told is because I never got the chance to speak to bankies, but you speak to people who spoke to them, and that they they were clear that they wanted a manager who'd won promotion from the Championship to the Premier League, and obviously Adkins was one of those who would fit the bill. Yeah. And then I think McDermott came on the scene at that time, and he'd run it with Reading. Yeah. And then and you'd hear Owen Coyle, and you think, no, well, no, that surely that surely can't be. 
But then four or five days in, I got a call from someone who trusted implicitly yeah. who said it's happening. And then I called someone else who would be able to confirm it, who would trust implicitly. And, and he did. And it was, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And yeah. th- this is not, that's nothing personal against Owen Coyle at all, but just with the way the fans were feeling at that time to, to do that was strange, but that's in the past now. And I think they've got, certainly got the right man in Toby Mowbray and it, and it looks like Venkis are doing the right things, appointing the chief executive, getting a better infrastructure there from the first team in the academy. So, you know, fair play fair play in that respect. You know, it, it's had to go down to get better, but it does seem to be getting better. Absolutely, yeah, it certainly does. And as you say, winning on the field just creates a feel-good factor around the place. But I think what is really, really nice and heartwarming this season is we've actually seen some good football played. Yeah. Um, Bradley Dak, so Harry Chapman before he was injured, Bradley Dack has matured. I am the person who, on early podcasts of this season, by the way, slagged off Bradley Dack for his work rate <laughs> and his lack of uh, pr- providing defensive cover. So what the hell do I know? Uh, I've apologised since on every podcast, I think, where I'm pulled up for that. But <laughs> him and Danny Graham seem to have an almost tele- telepathic understanding. It's just really nice to watch. And we've got away support in the thousands. We could sell a lot more tickets if the grounds were big enough. Hear these stories on Twitter of people taking the kids to the football and we're winning and they want to go again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just think that's what it's all about. I remember being taken as a kid and uh, in my second season, Sporting Rovers went down to the third division and it was it was a few years before we came up. But that, that 1974-75 promotion season is still one of my favourite Rovers memories. Yeah. Fingers crossed that... Um, we can stay up there on Sunday is going to be an absolutely crucial game. Yeah, it'll be so a cracking game, won't it? I've not asked you your allegiances, but I think I can guess it's one of two, and I'm going to say Everton. It is indeed, yeah, yeah, probably not the. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the better half in there's side, but given my <laughs> 36 years on the planet, I do, I do uh, wonder whether I'm doing the right thing bringing my sons up to be Evertonians as well. But no, I am a, I am an Evertonian. I didn't particularly always make it clear on on Twitter because I felt. People didn't want to hear my opinions about Everton. I think they wanted to hear my opinions or news from Blackburn Rovers. But I never, I never hid it. But no, yeah, I'm, I'm an Evertonian. Well, I think with Al- with Alan's um, allegiances as well, yeah, he clearly couldn't cover up the fact that he, he was no. an Everton fan no. first and foremost, <laughs> and, and made no attempt so to do. So yeah, he was authentic in that respect. But uh, and what do you think about Big Sam then? Uh, I at, at the time uh, I was I was happy with his appointment because I've gone back to a lot, see Everton a lot this season, certainly at Goodison. And we were a shambles at that point. You know, we were getting beat four or five by a lot of teams who we shouldn't have been getting beaten by. Uh, and it needed someone like that to come in. And I think Sam's underrated as a coach. But I, what I would say, it's deteriorated greatly in the last <laughs> few weeks. Uh, and I actually think it's not just him that the blame could be put on for it, because I think it's a, at a leadership level higher up as well. I think it's almost been forgotten about this season how much Everton have actually spent on players. I think I seen a stat the other day that they've actually got the most, the tenth most expensive squad in Europe, yeah. and I think the fifth biggest spenders uh, this season. And actually, to be behind Burnley, for example, in the table yeah. is uh, it is not on really, you know. Uh, so I'm I'm a bit concerned about the direction, and I think it probably would be best if Sam moved on. I just don't. I think it was always kind of a a short-term gap, yeah. and I had no problems with that. And ultimately, I think he's going to have got Everton safe, which was the job he was brought in to do. Yeah. But to do more with the money that is now available at the club, which is completely foreign to say, you know, when David Moyes was in charge, I think need more needs to be done. I'm not saying Everton should be winning the Champions League or getting into the Champions League and winning leagues and things like that, but I think they have they've 
they've really performed terribly this season, to yeah. be honest. It should, that should be an aspiration, though, if you if they move to the new ground and, as you say, with that wealth behind, you know, I would imagine that somebody buys Everton thinking, well, that is a club with the history and with the potential to break into that into the top four. And we've seen Manchester United fail to get in the top four, Liverpool fail to get in the yep. top four, and somebody, obviously, there's a couple of clubs, Arsenal probably most notably, are going to struggle. So I think it's good for the game uh, to have more people challenging at the top table, certainly. But, yeah, uh, I'm not sure Sam will be there for the uh, for the long term. But no. whoever signed 14 central midfield playmakers in the summer ought to be accountable as well. <laughs> no, well, that, this is, I think, that, that's the problem. It's it's almost, it's not a Venky scenario, nowhere near. But I think with Mashiri, the owner, <clears throat> he's clearly got a lot of money. And the fact that the, the stadium on the, the waterfront of Liverpool docks looks like slowly but surely he's going to come to fruition is a fantastic progression for the club. But it almost seems like he's been badly advised, yes. <laughs> you know, because yeah. someone should be telling him, as you say, you don't buy 14 centimetre fielders <laughs> or 14 number 10s because it's going to cost him a lot of money, uh, which it has done. So it's certainly been an expensive lesson for him in the, in the first couple of years. I think he's been in charge of the club. I think that's one trend in modern day football, that if you've got a rich owner, there is no shortage of people willing to part you from your money. And, no, t- and take a commission for the advert. Not at all. Not at all. Well, fingers crossed then that um, one day Rovers, uh, one day soon, Rovers and Everton will meet again in the Premier League. That will be that will be absolutely. Might fantastic. be the Championship next season. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ruling out that prospect. Well, I'll, I'll settle for, you draw, for drawing you in the FA Cup semi-final or something next season, and then maybe <laughs> in the league thereafter. But Paul, thank you very much for uh, for giving it your time. It's much appreciated. You're welcome any time on the pod. We'll we'll catch up and and all the best to to Chester. I hope they uh, they get over their financial crisis. And all the best to the Chester Chronicle. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the regional newspapers being strong and reporting on local issues and keeping people to account. So let's hope that uh, you can do your bit to keep them afloat and thriving and surviving in the future. So thanks once again, Paul. Thanks very much, Jane. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for giving us your time. 